All right. So are you guys reading ahead? I'm not going to teach every chapter, every verse of Isaiah, but uh, I'm making sure that I read all of Isaiah over and over as I go. You could do that too. So yeah, so we're not going to do eight, uh, and we're not going to do all of nine, uh, because there's this, you know, this redundancy coming back and circling back to the same judgment over and over and over again. And you guys might choke me if I preached doom and gloom on you every Thursday night. And so what we're going to try to do is is continue on and cling to the messianic thread uh, that's everywhere in there. So what you find is, you know, nestled in these prophecies condemning the, uh, the northern kingdom of, of Israel and all of these judgments pronounced upon them for their evil are these glimmers of hope that, you know, kind of look through judgment, through um, tragedy uh, to this hope regarding Messiah's future coming and Israel's uh, restoration. So, Israel will be judged uh, during Isaiah's lifetime. Uh, And this is, I guess, this is, if you're not paying close attention, you'll get confused why there's this constant back and forth. Uh, So you have two different kinds of fulfillments, one near and one distant. So Israel is going to be judged uh, during Isaiah's lifetime, the northern tribes. Uh, But after all of God's judgment is complete, He'll offer, he will offer relief through the coming of Messiah. And uh, that's distant. So judgment of Israel, it's right around the corner. The, uh, the, the coming of Messiah is another, at least part of coming, the coming of Messiah, because Isaiah talks about both. Uh, the first one, of course, is 700 years about from the time of Isaiah. And I wish I could give you a date for the second one, but I can't. So because I don't want to join the masses of everyone else that has set a date and has been wrong. Uh, Because um, Jamie Lund knows me well enough, I do not like to be wrong. (laughs) Right, Jamie? Okay. Because Jamie likes to be wrong a lot, and he just can't understand why. (laughs) Yeah. So, of course, the coming of Messiah comes in two stages. Uh, We know them as the first and the second coming. And the prophets speak of his coming. And they make no effort to distinguish between first and second. You got to love that. You got to love that. The events concerning uh, both uh, comings are recorded, but they do not speak in terms of first coming and second coming. We can uh, now determine um, what he does and when, uh, at least first and second coming, just not dates, because of what he did at his first coming. Whatever was prophetically not accomplished at his first coming will happen at his second coming, okay? So we find that at his first coming, his mission was to condemn sin in the flesh, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8. He did that at Calvary's cross. And at his second coming, he will preside over the condemnation of the wicked at his kingdom. So chapter 8 and chapter 9, verse 8 through 21 is just a continuation of God's judgment against the northern kingdom of Israel and her companion. Remember, there was an alliance, a wicked alliance between uh, the northern tribes of Israel, uh, Ephraim specifically, and the king of Syria to come against Judah. So that's all doom and gloom regarding them. 
And, uh, but as I said, I don't want to continue revisiting that, so we're just going to cover uh, chapters nine, chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, this messianic thread of the advents of Christ. So if you would, uh, I don't have a long reading tonight, but if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 through 7, another uh, familiar prophecy, at least a portion of it, uh, oftentimes is read at Christmas, even though it's not a Christmas text necessarily. Verse 1 says, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness, have seen a great light, those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You've multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian." For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Father, we thank you for your word. As always, Lord, um, we're grateful. We're grateful that in prophecy, you're the God of all time and eternity and that you make known the end from the very beginning. You orchestrate all things to your intended and revealed end. And Lord, we thank you that in the framework of history uh, regarding sinful man, placed yourself in our midst that you might redeem us and deliver us from the consequences of sin, Lord, and bring us into relationship with you. Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we'll go ahead and be seated. We'll look back at verse one. Nevertheless... The gloom will not be upon her who is distressed as when at first he, that's God, lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee of the Gentiles. Why does that sound strange? It's not Gentile territory, or was it? We'll talk about it. The gloom refers back to verse 22 of chapter 8 concerning the prophecy of Assyria conquering the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember, we have to distinguish between Syria, Damascus, and Assyria, the empire, okay? And uh, Assyria, Jamie, would you shut that door, please? Hey, makes for a nice soundtrack, so. So Assyria, them attacking and conquering and oppressing the northern kingdom. Uh, The prophecy here is specifically uh, speaking of the region that surrounds the Galilee. Um, 
where that is, of course, where the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali had settled in the days of Joshua. This, uh, as we know, that entire region, uh, everything north of Judah apostatized from the house of David after Solomon's reign. And from its departure, they, from the day of its departure, they lived in idolatry and rebellion against God. And so God is now preparing uh, prophetically to judge them by the Assyrians. And then as a result of their conquest, it brought, as the text says, gloom, anguish, and darkness to them. Um, but Assyria, uh, they didn't just conquer and capture the children of Israel in the north. What they did was they displaced the Jews and then scattered them across the greater region. And the intention was to destroy their national identity and their religious identity. And to a great extent, they were successful. They were, the Jews uh, were scattered and most of them lost their identity. And then what they did is in the place of the Jews, in their cities, in their houses, they put pagans, they put Gentiles there. So they pulled the people out and they put different people in. And uh, so they were displaced and then replaced with other people. And so as the last line of verse 1 says, it became Galilee of the Gentiles. Very strange. To those that had heard Isaiah prophesy this, that must have <coughs> either confused them or it was just something that they laughed about. That's, that's our territory. It's not Gentile territory. But then in spite of the, the success achieved by the Assyrians, God promised to restore a remnant of Israel, uh, not only to the land, restoring them to the land, but then bringing them back to himself in, as the text says, in truth. Isaiah 10, 20 through 23 says this, and it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as have escaped of the house of Jacob will never again depend on him who defeated them, but will depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. The remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea, a remnant of them will return. The destruction decreed shall overflow with righteousness. So not just the southern kingdom of Judah being restored from the Babylonian empire, but a remnant out of the northern kingdom will return and they'll also be restored. It's Isaiah's prophecy here in chapter 9 that explains how God restores his people after the judgment. So he continues, he says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death Upon them, a light has shined. So, becoming, so before the coming of Messiah, uh, we know that many Jews had returned to Israel uh, years, even generations, uh, after the Assyrian and the Babylonian invasion. And though they experienced uh, during that time, you know, brief, well, we might say a brief stint of liberty under the Maccabees, they were mostly oppressed by one nation, after another until they were finally brought under the tyranny of Rome. Uh, it, it, it always is amusing to me that it's called the, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And uh, all it meant was, you will do things the way we say, or we will annihilate you. And now it is true that when people were absorbed into the Pax Romana, they fell under the safety of Rome. They fell into the laws of Rome. Uh, of course, they were oppressed through taxes and tyranny. Um, but the whole thing is tyrannical freedom is not really freedom, is it? No. 
So, so the people were under foreign tyrannical darkness. And so bad were these generations of, of oppression in Israel that Isaiah refers to the northern land of Israel as the valley of the shadow of death. How would you like the city that you live in to be called the valley of the shadow of death? Very nice. Very pleasant. Nice vacation home for that. But the days weren't just dark because of their, you know, their worldly circumstances. By the time the first century arrived, the Jews were also being repressed by, oppressed by rabbinical legalism and all of these outward and mechanical forms of religion. <coughs> Excuse me. It's probably bothering me more than you guys. Yeah, so because of God's judgment, in, especially in Babylon, the, the Jews ditched their idolatrous practices. I mean, he pretty much cured Israel of paganism and idolatry through uh, what he did in Babylon and with Assyria. But what they did was over time, uh, toward the end of the, the Maccabean period, you know, there was the development of the school of the Pharisees. There was the, um, uh, the, the, the aristocrats of the, the Sadducees. And they, they reduced the faith that was handed down from their fathers to this to, to like religious and mechanical duties. Uh, Peter even addresses this later on. He says, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, not, their, not the patriarchs, the ancient fathers, not Moses, not Samuel, but these rabbinical teachers. He says, their aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers but you're redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So the idea was the Jews were trying to be redeemed by this, these, this rabbinical tradition as opposed to the means by which God was providing. Paul even says that uh, regarding the Jews. He says, he says, I testify that the Jews, he says, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they've gone about trying to establish their own righteousness and not the righteousness of God. And it all has to do with rabbinical tradition. Rules, rituals, all of that. Trying to be saved by works rather than by faith in the God of Jacob. Now I do realize that you know, some, even some in evangelicalism believe that the old covenant was salvation by works. It wasn't. Uh, it was always salvation by faith. Uh, Genesis 15.5, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Okay? And then it's uh, through obedience to God that you prove the faith that you have. James even says that in James chapter 2, that Abraham proved his faith. Because remember, he's justified in Genesis 15 by faith. But then it's years later in Genesis 22 where he proves his faithfulness to God by bringing Isaac up the mountain. You understand? So he's saved by faith, but then that faith is proven through faithfulness. But it wasn't by faithfulness that he got saved. It's, it's the difference between root and fruit. And the Jews had messed all this up in what we call the, the intertestamental period, that 400 years between Malachi and the advent of, of Christ's coming. So, and of course, the dangerous thing of adopting legalism is that keeping the rules is impossible. And they demand nothing less than perfection right? Well, I'm grateful that Paul says in Romans 3, uh, 19 and 20, that by the law is the knowledge of sin. And then in verse 21, he says, but now 
the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. And he says it's confirmed by the law and the prophets. So he's talking about the gospel, the gospel of grace and being saved by faith. He says that's talked about in the law itself and the prophets. But the Jews had just destroyed it through their mechanical forms and stuff. So Israel, at this particular time in history, the first century, they're oppressed physically, and, but they're also oppressed spiritually. They're in complete darkness, as Isaiah says. And it was into that, it was to that, the first part of the first century, that God, in his great mercy, according to prophetic promises, he sent them this great light. His light, it says, dawned upon them, but his light dawned upon them in the form of a person, in the form of Jesus. And the New Testament tells us that this, his light specifically began to shine in Galilee when Jesus left Nazareth. And he traveled down to 600 feet below sea level to Capernaum. Matthew 4.14 says that Isaiah 9, 1 through 2 were fulfilled when Jesus came to Capernaum. Capernaum. Capernaum is the real pronunciation. And started preaching repentance and the kingdom of heaven in that Galilee of the Gentiles, formerly Galilee of the Gentiles. So he came to Israel in darkness, and he offered them the light of life. And the way that Jesus talks about it is being transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. So at Jesus' first coming, he did not come to change Israel's physical, material, or national circumstances. He came to redeem them spiritually. Of course, that is always the greater need, isn't it? Spiritually. We always want to uh, rehabilitate people in their flesh. And our society is very good at that. And we overlook the spiritual need, which is the eternal one. Uh, we have complete, uh, every 12-step program is like this. We will get people sober, uh, but we'll leave their soul to hell. Because if we get them sober, but we don't save them, that sober person will go to hell forever and never come back. So God always prioritizes the spiritual before the physical, the natural. But... Of course, according to God's promises, Israel would also be delivered from her oppressors as well. Uh, in Genesis, Israel received physical promises as much as they did spiritual. But the physical promises of prosperity and liberty in the land were contingent on their faithfulness to God. Land is promised to them, so is prosperity. But that was contingent, and that was contingent on faith. Their spiritual restoration would lead into their material prosperity. Let's move on. Now listen to the, the change in the language here. He says, you have multiplied, multiplied the nation, you is a reference to God, and increased its joy. They rejoiced before you according to the joy of harvest, and men rejoiced when they divided, the, as, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. When we get to verse 3, a challenge of interpretation presents itself again because of the way that verse 3 is related to verse 4 and 5. Now, pay attention. Verse 1 and 2 speak of the light coming to Galilee, and verse 3 and 4 refer to the aftermath. of That's different. So how do we interpret all of this language? Now, there are essentially three different approaches that have been applied when we come to some of these passages. Okay? We wrestled with it a little bit in chapter 2, and the first five verses. We have to wrestle with it here as well. So let me present to you the three ways um, that people deal with this. Uh, I have the pleasure of interacting with all of these thinkers. 
and uh, weighing what they say. So we can either do what the first century Jews did and make this whole prophecy about Israel being rescued from its oppressors by the Messiah, followed by the establishment of his earthly kingdom. That's it. It all has to do with material blessing and the time of prosperity that is brought in by the Messiah. But of course, that interpretation ignores the volumes and volumes of prophecy and the need for Israel's national repentance, okay, before God can grant that to them. Another way to interpret this is to apply a strict, uh, what we would say, a spiritualization of the text, as the allegorist does, where none of this has anything to do at all with ethnic Israel or their deliverance from their oppressor, but has everything to do with the church and her spiritual redemption. But this interpretation abandons all hermeneutical consistency, okay? For they will interpret the prophecies regarding the judgment of ethnic Israel surrounding this prophecy as literally speaking of Israel while allegorizing everything that regards the future redemption of ethnic Israel as a reference to the church. Let me break that down. When Isaiah's prophecies talk about the judgment of Israel, they say it refers to ethnic Israel. But when it talks about the future redemption of Israel and her material prosperity, they say it's referring to the church. So if it says anything about judgment, it's all about Israel. But if it says anything about blessing, it's all about us. Or we can divide the text into two parts, one referring to Jesus' first coming and the other half to his second coming, interpreting the text at face value, always referring, without exception, to ethnic Israel, okay, as the original audience most definitely understood it, and I believe as God meant it. Okay? Uh, the last of the three, I believe, is preferable to always say what the text says. It never says the church. Okay? It makes very specific uh, mentions of the land, uh, even Zebulun and Naphtali. It talks about the Galilee. These are all geographically specific to an ethnic group. And so to derive something out of that to, is, for me, it's, well, it's not exegesis. It's not, we're not getting that from the text. We're putting that into the text. And it, to me, it's just confusing. And I think we should stay away from it. So the last three, I think, is preferable. Let me explain why. Verse 1 and 2, as we said, refer to the actual land of Israel around the Galilee, right? Where Zebulun and Naphtali settled which means that we're talking about those who actually dwelt there when, these prophet, when the prophecy was fulfilled, and those who dwelt there were ethnic Israelis. These ethnic Israelis were the people who were actually oppressed, right? They're the ones that were actually oppressed, and they were living in a time characterized by darkness. It's, of course, a figure of speech for oppression, both spiritually and physically. And we can rightly apply this to the first century, when Jesus came, because Matthew 4.14 tells us that Isaiah 9.1 and 2 was fulfilled by Jesus at that time. But you know what Isaiah does not say? He does not say that verse 3 through 5 was fulfilled. So we have grounds for saying that 1 and 2 apply to the first coming. But Isaiah does not say that the rest of it applies to, to the first coming. He only says verse 1 and 2 were fulfilled. 3, 4, and 5 look very much like what is said about Jesus' second coming, okay? We'll look at it. Verse 4, he says, For you, speaking of God, have broken the yoke of his burden 
and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. So the day of Midian is a reference to Judges chapter 6 through 8, when, when Gideon had delivered Israel from the oppression of Midian. Okay, that's what that is. He says, for every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. Verse 3 through 5 describe, as we've said, the aftermath of a nation that has been to war and was victorious, right? There's joy and rejoicing, verse 3. The yoke and staff and rod of the oppressor is broken, verse 4. Every warrior's sandal and garment that was saturated with the blood of combat is burned for fuel in the fire, verse 5. Okay, this is consistent with Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 2 regarding the end of all wars when there will no longer be the need for the weapons of war. All swords, spears will be transformed into agrarian tools. Here in chapter 9, all the clothing of war will be burned, never to be used again. That's different. According to Isaiah 2, after all the implements of war are destroyed, all the peoples of the world will flock to Jerusalem, and there they will worship the Lord, and he will teach them his ways, Isaiah 2, 2 through 5. We also observe from chapter 2 that this will all happen literally in the land of Israel, uh, but not just the land, but ethnic Israel as its inhabitants. Remember, we talked about the superscription where Isaiah tells us what the prophecy is about, and then he gives the prophecy. He says, the things concerning Judah and Jerusalem. That's what it concerns. It doesn't concern us as the church. It concerns a land with a specific ethnic group. So the Messiah is going to do all of this, but he's going to do it at two different times. Two different times. Now notice, even the chronology of the text in chapter 9 is consistent with the history, the, the historical chronology. Jesus fulfilled verse 1 and 2 at his first coming. He'll fulfill verse 3 through 5 at his second coming. How will he perform both of these? Well, it begins by him coming in the flesh, and it will end when he returns as a conquering king. He says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So at Christ's first advent, we know he'll be conceived, born of a virgin in poverty. We talked about that in Isaiah 7, 14 and 15. It says that upon this male child's shoulders will rest the authority and responsibility of government. We're talking about ultimate government, okay? Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28, 18. All authority in heaven and on earth. That's interesting because in John 3, 17, Jesus said that he did not come, first coming, to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. So his first coming was about saving people according to the gospel. But when Jesus returns the second time, he'll, Paul says he'll come with flaming fire, taking vengeance on all of those who reject the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 10. He will condemn them in judgment. So first coming, I did not come to condemn. I came to save. Second coming, it's totally different. I will come to condemn the wicked. John 5, 22 says, all judgment has been committed to Christ. When he comes again, there's going to be one government, one government. 
And just as his first advent was characterized by the shedding of his own blood, his second advent will be characterized by the shedding of his enemy's blood. The garments, it says, rolled in blood in combat. Jesus will return as a conquering king. God reveals to Isaiah what this male child will be called, uh, wonderful counselor. Now, all other uh, modern translations have it as wonderful counselor, mighty God, and then everlasting father. Now, it's interesting, I think, to note that you remember the story in Judges when um, Samson's father, is in, he's speaking with the angel of the Lord. And he says to the angel, he says, what is your name? What is your name? And the angel of the Lord, okay, says, why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. Seeing it's wonderful. It's, it means wondrous, remarkable, incomprehensible, miraculous even. Now, and we know that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. So Isaiah says his name will be wonderful. And when he engaged with Manoah, he said, why do you want to know my name? Seeing that it's, it's wondrous. He's probably saying, it's incomprehensible, my name. Jesus, of course, is the, the wondrous counselor, for in him, Paul says, dwell all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2, 3. He possesses wisdom and knowledge in the, as an infinite storehouse. He's mighty God. Now, uh, through Isaiah and through Matthew, we have not uh, shied away from declaring Jesus' deity, have we? He is almighty God in human flesh, John 1, 1 and verse 14. 1 Timothy 3.16, you know, great is the mystery of God, godliness, for God was manifest in the flesh. The more challenging name given to Jesus is Everlasting Father, because he is in fact God the Son, not God the Father. Uh, same substance, but a different person. How do, we, how do we clear that up? How many guys have struggled with that? The Son will be called the Father. Well, the Hebrew word ab uh, which is used here, doesn't always mean dad. Not always. It is used of someone who is the originator of something. And Jesus is the originator of all. He's the creator of all things. Uh, Paul says all things were created by him and through him and for him, Colossians 1.16. And so in that sense, he is the father of all creation. He's also the author. We say he's the author and finisher of our faith. The word author there also means originator. That's Hebrews 12, 2. He originated the Christian faith, and he is the ultimate cause of all our faith. Okay, so in that sense, he is the originator. So I don't think it's a problem to call him everlasting father. Uh, what does Micah 5, 2 say? He says that the Messiah who is coming, he is from old, from everlasting. He's eternal. And finally, he's called the Prince of Peace. Well, that's appropriate because after he purges the earth of all evil, the world will be at peace, and he will be present to ensure that it remains that way. Now, uh, I've heard some critics, uh, they object to this conclusion because Jesus comes with a sword. How can the sword bearer be the peacemaker? Well, as long as there's wickedness and evil in the world, there will be no peace. And because the wicked do not surrender their arms or their efforts, it will require violence to achieve peace, okay? You remember after David had subdued all of the enemies around Israel, it says that the land had peace. He secured peace by the sword, okay? Scripture is very clear that that's exactly how Jesus 
will do that. Also, as Prince of Peace, he's the one who secured our peace with God, uh, Paul says in Colossians 1.20, by the blood of his cross. So it was through violence that he secured our peace. Amen? Yeah, everything leading up to Calvary was completely violent. He's the Prince of Peace. All right, this is my favorite. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. When, when Christ returns to the earth at his second coming, his, his final advent, he will reign over it as the supreme sovereign, who all of government will, be, will rest upon his shoulders. And the increase or the extent and greatness of his government and peace, it says there's just zero, there's no end to it. Okay, his order and justice will be eternal, eternal. Isn't that exciting? I, you know, you guys all read the news, right? How many of you guys read a newspaper? Oh, two of you. Well, you're one, so one. But you all read the news. You read foreign, domestic, and uh, it's looking really good out there, isn't it? There's famine almost everywhere on the planet. There's injustice, there's human trafficking, there's murder, there's theft, there's BLM, there's all this stuff, there's gender confusion, there's abortion, all of this is going on. And I can't, I can't help it, when I read that, I read passages like this in my mind. It's going, this is all coming to an end because the king of justice, he's going to return, he's going to crush evil, and he's going to resurrect a world that is peace, peaceful and righteous. Yeah. The text says that he will do this from David's throne and over David's kingdom. A couple things. Where was David's throne? Jerusalem. And what was the realm of his kingdom? Israel. Everything conquered by him, okay? All of which lied within the land promised to Abraham, okay? So David's throne is not in heaven, is it? Whose throne is in heaven? God's throne is. That's right. The scriptures never say that David's throne is in heaven. Also, David's kingdom is not in heaven. The kingdom of heaven belongs to God. And the scriptures never say that David's kingdom is in heaven. All of that is on earth. And that is where Jesus is coming to rule. He's coming. Those verses are fulfilled on earth when Christ returns. He will rule from Jerusalem. He will reign over David's former kingdom and the rest of the land God promised to Israel. He must do this. Otherwise, God will not have kept his unconditional promises to Abraham. And God always keeps his promises. But there's more. Messiah will also rule all over all of the earth. Remember as we read in Isaiah 2, okay, that all nations will flock to Zion. And there they will learn the ways of the Lord from the Lord himself. Not from a priest, not from a Levite, not from a pastor, but from the Lord himself. He will reign over the entire earth. I'm in Daniel uh, right now with my kids, and we're in Daniel 2. Of course, there's the vision of the multi-metallic statue. It's just a crazy vision. And the fun part is, is that Nebuchadnezzar would not tell anybody what his dream was. You remember that? And he said to his wise men, he said, you tell me what I dreamt and you'll tell me what it means or I'll kill you and I'll burn your house down. 
So Daniel, of course, prays to God and God tells him what the dream is and what it means. So he goes to Nebuchadnezzar, tells him about his vision of a multi-metallic statue, the head of gold. My kids get candy when I ask them questions. The chest of silver, the thigh of what? Bronze, legs of iron, feet of iron and clay. We have a tendency to think that that's all of the vision. It's not. Daniel says, O king, as you were watching, a rock was broken out of the mountain and it came and it crushed all of those other kingdoms into small pieces and they were scattered to the wind and that rock grew and covered the entire, e- the entire earth. It's the last kingdom and it's not regional, it's global. And that's the kingdom of Christ. And then you get to Daniel chapter seven where we see that one like the son of man was brought near to the ancient of days and to him was given a kingdom and it is a kingdom that would never come to an end. And it was over the entire world. It's what Isaiah is talking about. It's what all the prophets are talking about. It's what you should be talking about. The second coming of Christ. Yeah, so it's during Christ's earthly reign that God fulfills the throne promises to David from 2 Samuel 7. And at the same time, he'll fulfill the land promises to Abraham. And then Israel at that time will enjoy even greater blessings than originally. We will get to enjoy them too. The land promises, of course, are recorded in Genesis 12, 15, 17, 22, and on and on it goes. Unconditional, unilateral promises. One final thing. The text says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So these events will not occur through the the mediation or instrumentation of a prophet or, or by any means other than God himself. This is an immediate miracle, just as Isaiah 14, 7, 14, where it says, the Lord himself will give you a sign, referring to the virgin conception and birth of the Messiah. These things that we're talking about now in chapter 9 will be done by Jesus himself directly and immediately. Just as he was conceived by the immediate hand of God, he lived a perfect life, died an atoning death, rose victoriously from the grave, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's going to return to the earth physically, literally. He will conquer his enemies, Isaiah 63. He'll sit on his father David's throne and rule over the world. He sits at the right hand of his father, heavenly father. He sits on the throne, the earthly throne of his father David. It's going to be crazy. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Nothing will stop him in his zeal. And it's important to note that God never recants on these promises. It's done. It's settled. Okay? It's done. What's stated about Christ's return is kingdom. It's only reinforced as we continue through the book of Isaiah, the other prophets, and into the New Testament. There's this great anticipation. Remember, just before Jesus ascended into heaven, actually 40 days leading up to that, it says that Jesus was teaching them concerning the kingdom. And then the disciples came to him and said, will you at this time? And Jesus said, the times and the seasons are not for you to know. They've been appointed by my father. You got to go preach the gospel first. And at the end of that time that my father is appointed, then we'll talk about kingdom matters. Okay, good stuff. Everything is unraveling like a scroll that has all the details on it. Everything we see, everything we hear about, it's part of God's revealed end. That's why I don't mind reading about what's going on in the world, because I know that he's got this. 
It's not spiraling out of control. God is directing all of the evil, all of the injustice to a particular event called the judgment seat of Christ. And that's why God commands all men everywhere to repent because he's appointed a day in which he'll judge the world according to what is right. Acts chapter 17, verse 30 and 31. It's his final solution to the problem of evil. He will return, he'll cleanse the earth. So I guess the question is, where do you stand with him at this particular moment? Because we're rushing toward that final moment, I believe, at at an accelerated pace. So where do you stand now with him? Does your life and faith, does it anticipate the return of Christ with love and adoration? Or does his return fill you with fear and trepidation? Is his grace preparing you for his coming? Are you like Paul who loved his appearing? Or is unrepentant sin haunting you? Listen to what Paul says, and I'll end with this. He says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. His grace is teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking forward to the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people who are zealous for good works. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Grace is preparing us for his coming. If you're not looking forward to it, but you're worried about it, it's time to repent. It's time to be excited. Amen. Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. Larry, I'll answer all your questions after service. Larry's a good thinker, fun to engage with. Actually, you should just bring all your questions to Larry. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would teach us what it is to love your appearing. You've prepared the crown of righteousness, Paul says, for not only me, but everyone who has loved your appearing. Lord, teach us what it's like to love your appearing, to be excited about it, to prepare our lives for it, to shake off every besetting sin that so easily entangles us. Lord, to be diligent to walk with you because we can't stop the appointed time. It will come whether we're ready or not. So Lord, impress upon us Prepare us, I pray. If we're messing with sin, I pray, Lord, that you'd give us courage to say no, to make a decision. If we're apathetic, I pray, Lord, that you would fill us with fire. Help us, Lord. Help us to be ready. And help us to help others to get ready. In Jesus' name, amen.